0: I think I like doing the net because it's simple. Um, and I typically will roast it a bit of olive oil, salt and maybe some rosemary, brown it off each side for a few minutes, put it in the oven, leave it. I, this is the sort of thing I can be cooking while I'm milking the cows.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. For over 40 years, Michael Wallstead has produced milk and meat in the Barossa Valley. But more recently, he's made a name for himself with the way he is farming pigs. Michael's Jersey milk is used for butter and cream, but it's also used to raise free-range Berkshire and Tamworth pigs. And it's likely to be the only milk-fed pig herd in Australia. Michael, how are you?
0: Uh, Good morning.
1: It's good to get you on the show. Um, Milk-fed pigs, that's not something you often hear about.
0: No, um, but it's something I saw as a child and um, my parents came from Berlin after the war and they moved into a a rural location in the the mid-north of South Australia and there were farmers that were very um, welcoming of uh, these new immigrants Um, and We visited there often. Then when we left, we went back to that area. And it was that typical mixed farm where they uh, had a small herd of cows and they would separate on farm for cream. What did they do with the skim milk? They had a small herd of pigs. They had, you know, 200 hens and collected eggs. They had sheep and wheat. It was a dry, dry land area. And, of course, farming has in general terms, gravitated to monocultures where there's specialisation around one type of production, be it vineyard or dryland farming. or um, And uh, so it's something I'd seen as a child. And I think it's also where I had this enduring ambition to be a farmer, even though as was... And I think it must have come from then because that was although no farming background in the family that was my, I was determined to be one that actively discouraged however
1: <laughs> <laughs> when did when did you make that switch to and decide to become a farmer
0: well I, I it's hard to actually pin that down but i would say that i would have been 9 or 10 years old um, even though I was, we were living in a migrant city in the suburbs. Um, I used to uh, dream about that and prepare sort of budgets and annual programs and things like that. And then my parents moved to the Barossa when I was on the cusp of going into high school and we lived opposite a dairy farm. And that's where I would be. They became my second family and after school I would – always go there and uh, there on the weekends. And ultimately, I lived with them for a while before I bought my own property, which I I was 23.
1: Tell us a bit about, uh, you just mentioned sort of growing up a little bit, but what sort of role did food play in your family growing up?
0: Um, Yeah, it's one of those, uh, well, sort of food and hospitality, I think. Um, My mother, it was a bit unusual at that time, we're talking about the 60s, that my mother worked full time as well as my father and she worked in hospitality. Um, As a consequence of that, I got a job in hospitality when I was about 11. Um, You can see a real German work ethic emerging, can't you? Um, And um, then, uh, but Food, I suppose, one of the things that I do remember is that you'd have the lunch break at school and everyone would sit down in a shelter shed, open up their lunch boxes and everyone had white bread sandwiches and I had this sort of great big enormous, you know, uh, contin- what would be called a continental loaf and with different Feelings that it was always, I always almost had to sort of hide or conceal it because it felt very different. I lived in an area where there was a lot of British migrants, and um, there was only two people in the class that had a German name. All the others were Smiths and Jones and things like that. So, food sort of, we very much brought up with a sort of continental type background of food, but then. Working in hospitality early, and then my parents moved to the Brossa and that was there was a restaurant motel, um, and one of the the first and the largest in the Brossa. and you know I was waiting on tables and serving alcohol at thirteen onwards.
1: Wow! Well, tell us about the early years of the farm. You mentioned you were twenty three when you got your own. What, what did you start off um, farming?
0: Okay, so I. Bought a property. Uh, one of the couple of very fortunate things that happened is I went straight from school into local government, and I so I'm talking seventeen and a half. And t- urban planning, town planning, was emerging as a responsibility for local government, and it's something that I just gravitated to. And I had a CEO that very much fostered that. So I got a real feel for the local landscape and farming practices because that's what I was dealing with all the time. And um, ultimately, I went to university and got my qualifications and I've always maintained my professional life alongside. It's the only way I was able to purchase the property. So we're talking at a period when interest rates were 18% and um, I actually, for six months, I was on bridging finance of 22, and I bought a property that was very undeveloped. It was just 80 acres, two paddocks, um, a hill and the flats, very um, beautiful uh, deep loams on the flats, but the great thing it had was a very good source of underground water, um, and so much so that, That's been our household supply for all of the time we've been here. And um, so that, uh, my interest, having always wanted to be a farmer, having lived opposite a dairy farm and milked Jersey cows, it's a bit like a football, you know, what football team do you follow and why did you choose that? Um, And it's a bit like that. You know, I fell into dairy farming, I fell into Jersey's and, it gets under your skin and that's what I want to do, milk cows. So I built a dairy, I um, I milked up to 40 cows twice a day um, and sold the milk as a commodity to a local um, milk factory and did that for about 25 years.
1: Well, well, you're known as the dairy man and you have the heritage pork. When when did you introduce um, pigs into the equation?
0: Okay, so I had a... Two or three, two or three things were happening. One was my children; I have three, were growing up, um, and I was milking cows twice a day, and I was running my planning practice, and we'd reached to about five people, and I was getting work interstate, um, and so something had to give out of those three things, and the obvious one couldn't dispose of the kids, um, and it was uh, to give up milking cows, so. I took the irrigated pasture out of production and put it in a vineyard, but I always put had in mind that I'd find a way of getting back to it. So a break of about 10 years and a bit of life change for me. Um, in that time, daring had changed significantly and it had there was less of it in the Barossa, had moved to the Adelaide Hills and then subsequently to the southeast around Mount Gambier. And scale had changed too, that if you were milking cows, you needed to be you know, 200, 300, 400, which at my age um, was not something that I, I was particularly interested in so I wanted to go back to milking cows, but I need to have an economic model to underpin it, and I recalled my early childhood memories and exposure to milk-fed pork, and I'd combine that with other very basic understandings, not highly researched, that pork had lost its flavour um, through industrial production, and the concern about you know reduced fat and those sorts of questions, so I it was a real punt that milk-fed pork might be attractive, and it it was, and uh, and I started off with only about four cows and about twenty pigs, and and then I was milking you know ten or twelve, and I've settled on about twenty, but. I did get to the stage where I was producing more milk than I needed, so I branched out into the uh, into into cream and butter production as well.
1: Wow! Tell us a little bit about the pigs. Um, how did you decide what breeds would work best?
0: Well, the you know there was someone who locally that had very much fostered the. Berkshire pig and it was Maggie Bear, um, and her daughter Saskia. So there was that understanding of what they had identified as being important differences between a white pig and Berkshire pigs and, and Tamworths as well. But their main their main interest was was Berkshire. So it it certainly came from. The work that uh, Maggie and Saskia had done.
1: Tell us a little bit about the region. What's so great about the Barossa um, for what you do with pigs?
0: Well, I think one, there's lots of attributes, but one of the significant ones is its spatial relationship to important markets, being the Adelaide Central area. We have 60 minutes drive from the C B D. Um, so access to markets, you I know, mean, restaurants and farmers markets is not a big task. Um, for me it's a, water availability is a critical issue in the Brossa and some areas don't have access to it or they have access to very salty water or good water and we we have access to good water um, I'm located in a small valley um, it's it's very beautiful large big red ancient red gums um, and uh, I use parts of the property that aren't productive for other things uh, you know if you're going to have a, a vineyard you want a, a very uniform type of shape um, so it's they don't have access, and I have two creeks going through the property. They don't have access to the creeks themselves, but it's the edges of the creeks that I use for the for the pigs. So it was a way of utilising what would otherwise mean underutilised spaces.
1: What's life like on the farm for the pigs? Give us a sense of um, their day-to-day.
0: Okay. Well, they're very chilled. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh we, look, we milk the cows in the morning and then we feed the pigs. We have a, an, an old massive Ferguson tractor with a 1,000-litre tank on the back. That carries the milk. Um, we go, we've go. we got about six different uh, small paddocks that we um, bucket the milk into troughs. Um, they get some crushed grain on the top of it. It looks like muesli. Um, in this time of the year, there's not a lot of foraging, but because it's dry, um, I don't irrigate the pig areas. Um, they've all got wallows. Um, I think one of the lovely things to see is as the tractor goes, you know, they'll. it's a bit like, you know, a dog might be waiting for you and, you know, in the corner of the paddock and as the vehicle arrives, they, as a herd, they all go galloping along to the feeding point. And um, it's one of the things that you know that I've noticed in being in, involved in this is the, the muscle development of the animal. Given that they are act- they're, and they're very playful, you know they'll they'll play like puppies will play. Um, sometimes they just sort of spin around in circles, almost like chasing their tail. Um, but then they like sleep a lot too, um, and under the shade of the trees. And then the next, uh, uh, then they're fed again at night, um, in this case before milking, and then um, then we milk the cows. And that's the daily cycle. And then the weekly cycle is that we make cream on Mondays, we make butter on Tuesdays, we pack butter on Wednesdays. I take pigs to the slaughterhouse, which is about 30 minutes away. And we do the butchery there. I don't do the craftsmanship, but the slicing and dicing and packing. I do distribution to local restaurants on the way back and off to a courier, which takes it to Adelaide restaurants. Fridays are fairly, we do cream again on Friday. And then Saturday's the Barossa Farmers Market and Sunday's the Adelaide Farmers Market in the city.
1: Tell us a bit about um, the pigs, sort of their life cycle, and sort of what um, what you're looking for um, by the end of that in regards to size and fat content and um, an age.
0: Yeah, well, we I, I don't I, I rarely offer for sale a suckling pig. I, I have a personal view that it's a bit of a waste of a life, given you know the ratio of meat to bone to the effort it takes to get it on the on the ground. Um, and we typically will run them, we aim for about 55 to 70 kilos dressed weight. Um, at that stage, they could be six or seven months old. Um, and the sc- size of the cuts that either a restaurant is looking for or that my customers at the farmer's market would be looking for seems to work fairly well Um, given it's you know a a sort of artisan scale of production we have usually about 80 to 90 head on the ground at any time across the the different age groups that there can be some variation in fat and might be the season as well Um, but it's it's generally you know it's one of the things that people will look for is the marbling of the fat and the layer of fat, um, and the you know it's often asked is there much difference between the Tamworth and and the Berkshire? Um, uh, certainly, in character they are. Um, the, the Tamworths are much more assertive and pushy and bossy, whereas the Berkshires are much more sort of chilled and sit around a bit. Um, there's a couple a couple of things that I think is worth noting just to point on, to, to um, emphasise this point. There's two things that when I started this work and I work with a, a, a slaughterhouse butchery shop um, where... He's been running his business for a bit longer than me, so it's nearly 50 years. I think it's about 47. And um, my pig would be hanging uh, on the rails and there'd be one next to it. And he'd say, look at this. And he'd tap it, mine, and it was like a rock. And then the one next to it, um, you could almost lose your finger, almost like pushing your finger into the palm of your hand. There was no... Re- and um, I'm sure that's got something to do with the milk feeding but also the muscle development. And at one stage, that's one one observation. And then the other was that uh, earlier on, I was running a bit low in numbers and there was a, um, a breeder that had... A sort of sideline of, of Berkshires and I bought some at, I think three um, to help me out with the numbers at about probably about 12 weeks and what really struck me is that I went to go and pick them up and they were just beautiful. They looked like a China pig. They had this um, black silky hair and and what was the reason they'd never seen they'd never been out of a shed they'd never been in mud or anything like that and they, they actually made my pigs look pretty ordinary because they look so beautiful um, but then when they got here there was a bit a bit of a concrete slab around the edge of the water trough and that's all They just wanted to sit on that concrete slab.
1: Uh, Pigs are known to be uh, real characters, and a lot of the farmers that we've had on the show have had all sorts of stories. Do you have any sort of funny stories of what it's like dealing with pigs and um, living with them?
0: Well, is it two? One one was just yesterday, and I have to say that once I heard from you, I thought, I better. (laughs) I've had my headphones on for the last couple of days listening to all the episodes. Um, so yesterday, yesterday I was working out with doing some yard work and there was some rails which are pinned together and a pig just came up along and it and the, the pin has a, a bend at the top and it decided it wanted to pull out this pin. So first of all, it used its snout and lift it and drop, lift it, drop, lift it, drop. There's in. And, and then it decided to use its teeth. So grabbed it. you know, he was there for about five minutes determined to get this pin out, But he and he did. And he would have, had I been relying upon it, it would have been an escape route. But he was just playing with it um, and very entertained by it. But the other thing that really struck me earlier on was because I've dealt with dairy cows, all the, all the kids were equestrians and I used to event as well. So we've dealt with horses there. And pigs they 're all herd animals, um, and they want to stick together and be together and you, when you 're working them, you have to understand that to un- to, to organize how to move them but pigs are different they're just they they 're such social creatures, and they cuddle up to each other and often say it's they 're like a pack of sausages the, the way they top and toe and um, Top and tail, I mean, and um, and snuggle up. And thinking, well, why 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 are they such so social like that? And of course, it didn't, it didn't take me that long to think about it. But of course, they're born in litters, and that's their first moments in life. That's what they do. And I just took a photograph of a new litter the other day. They were sort of all sort of, they weren't lined up, they were all in a circle on top of each other. And um, of course with a cow it's usually a single birth, with a, a horse it's a single birth, but it's that the fact that they come in a litter. But So their social nature and their desire to snuggle up to each other is interesting. I remember once, um, they all have huts and I used to have to start very early in the morning to sort of milk feed the pigs and then get off to the market. And sometimes I'd get up and feed them and it was pitch black and they'd all be asleep in the um, in house and they're all again cuddled up. And it's super warm because the body heat, even in cold conditions, you don't need air conditioning under those circumstances. But the snoring, it was like a... Um, a uh, a series from the Three Stooges, you know, when they always just th- lie in bed together um, and all sort of snore and then turn over and they snore again and then. anyway, they're a couple
1: of little boys. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Well, what sort of culinary impact and eating experience does the milk feeding have on the pork that you produce?
0: Um, I think the the it's it's it maybe best to speak to some of. The chefs to answer this more in a more serious way, but you know, you you interviewed Jake Kelly the other day, and he touched on this question, and so it's the depth of flavour. I think it's the softness of uh, the the fat, the fact that it renders very easily, um, sort of melts um, and infuses into the meat. Um, up. Beyond that, I'm not able to say.
1: Well, on those experiences that you've had of eating your own own pork, do you, do you have one or two that you can tell us about the, the, the way it was cooked and, and what you Well, had?
0: it's the same one that everyone else has been answering. It's the neck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I like doing the neck because it's simple um, and I typically will roast it either without any fuss, um, a bit of olive oil, salt and maybe some rosemary, Brown it off each way, each side for a few minutes. Put it in the oven. Leave it. Uh, this is the sort of thing I can be cooking while I'm milking the cows. And you know, you come back and it's done. Just let it rest. Serve it and in, in slice it thinly, and, and its own juices. But then I've got another recipe. If I can organize myself, which has got some coriander, ginger, and garlic in a marinade for about an hour, and then um a source over it which is a bit similar in its composition and they're always, you know, always winners. People just always remark upon it.
1: What what is it about farming and being on the farm that you love so much? Um
0: there's again there's not one thing but um I think these days, look, I think it would be a really tough gig being a farmer generally, working alone, the grind of, you know, especially a dairy farmer, of getting up early, milking 200 cows. There's going to be a sick one. There's going to be this. You know, there's always something that is going wrong. And then to do it all again... And see and what and up until you know it's got better just recently, but sending away product and getting paid for almost less than the cost of production uh, and going backwards financially that's a really tough gig and then doing you know you under you can really appreciate how the mental health questions get to you I mean for me um I'm dealing – I'll just go back one step, but I always – particularly my urban planning role and the one of the things I'm interested in is the future of peri-urban areas for agricultural production and protecting them for that. Um, and I am a strong advocate that we think about farming in ways in which – has happened for a 100 years or so, or longer, and we're not open to alternatives of the type that I've described and that I do. Um, the And I try to explain it simply by saying, ask the question, do farmers produce food? And if I ask that question, people will always jump in and say yes. And my answer to that is, well, I actually don't. They produce commodities. Other people turn them to food. If it's flour, if it's wheat, it has to be you know, flat, turned to flour by someone else. or so If it's milk, it's got to be pasteurised and bottled and distributed. Well, nothing leaves this place as a commodity. Everything is converted to food, and uh, so we, as a consequence, um, and, and that involves producing it. Processing it, packaging it, marketing it, wholesaling it, retailing it, and distributing it. We don't have a distributor. We do. I do everything. And as a consequence, you're dealing with the end user. Of it, be it a chef or a customer at the farmers' market. And I think that level of feedback and satisfaction and appreciation for the effort that you've gone to, and the fact that they'll. the the level of compliments that you get about this is the best bacon I've tried in my life, sausages are amazing, there's no other one, you know, it's, it's not measurable but that's their experience and the fact that they're willing to tell you that and the fact that they come back week after week and, you know, have followers and people present themselves and I know exactly what they're looking for, you know, as they're approaching the stall. So... Yeah, I'm in a very lucky position to have that form of farming, and I'm a very strong advocate for trying to encourage other people to open their minds to it. And unfortunately, it's it's a lot of. I don't think people have the confidence necessarily of knowing. I mean, it's a very wide skill set that's required to go from um, from commodity to food. and if i can help with that I, I try to
1: well michael it's absolutely extraordinary what you're doing there and i know you've got many more stories um but it's been an absolute honor to have you on the crackling today um please keep in touch and we'd love to catch up again soon
0: thank you very much there's other stories to tell
1: this is the crackling a deep in the weeds production in partnership with pork Star. i'm anthony huxtep Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.